we're live once again. It's Friday. Um, we come to you from all over the place, from Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube. Anywhere else you want us to show up, just let us know. We'll kind of make it happen. But the whole point of today, tea time, um, have a coffee, whatever, drink, depending where you are in the world. Um, beer, I don't know, whatever your preference is. Join in the conversation. Today, we have the incredible Melanie Francis. I mean, to join, well, she's here, right? She's here to talk to us about HR uh, and their role to play in the world of neurodiversity. <laughs> so uh, maybe we can start off with, Mel, why don't you give us a lovely introduction to who you are, what you do, what you're about? Oh, thanks, Theo. And thanks for asking me to join you. I've been watching this every week and I, and I love it. You've had some great speakers, so I feel very honoured to be here. So I'm Mel Francis. I am um, a neurodiversity champion being, um, the reason being my son was diagnosed with neurodiversity um, with, with ASD five years ago. And when he was diagnosed, in my role as an HR professional, I just didn't really understand what that meant. And as a parent, I didn't really understand what it meant. So I sought to understand him. I sought to understand autism and quickly jumped from autism to neurodiversity. Um, had a brilliant um, opportunity to interact with Amanda, learned so much from her, now qualified and I'm now working with Amanda. Um, as a director of neurodiversity at work. So I'm super excited, um, as well as running my company, Neuro Inclusive HR. So when I learned about neurodiversity and I thought, why are we not talking about this in HR world? Like we need to have this really high up on our agenda. So I took it upon myself to start talking to colleagues, to um, my fellow CIPD members. I'm a I'm a fellow of the CIPD and really helping to raise awareness amongst the HR community, which has just grown. So I now talk to lots of businesses, lots of organizations to help to raise awareness. But at the core of my profession, you know, I'm still um, an HR professional. I still feel like we have got a lot to contribute to this conversation and to help our businesses, our colleagues, to really navigate this path of making sure that we are building truly neuro-inclusive organisations. So welcome, welcome, welcome. And it's Thank lovely you. you're here with us this morning and you have a wealth of experience and knowledge. And, and I think that's something, you know, Martin's asking, what role do EDI champions play with the ND specialists? You know, mm. it's, and... and do often HR don't know enough about ND. What yeah. do you think HR specialists in in different organisations? What do you think they should know? Gosh, they should they should know that this is you know in the same way that any other protective characteristic is something that they should be knowing about as mm. an HR professional. Mm. They should be knowing about ND mm. because neurodiverse conditions are covered by the Equality Act 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the basis of everything we do, right, is making sure that we are working within the confines of our employment law. That's one of the three columns I'm going to talk about, employment law, our ACAS 
policies and procedures give us the real, you know, the 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 baseline for everything that we do, and then our policies and procedures within our organization. And what we know is that a lot of our policies and procedures, including our EDI policies, don't even mention neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I was on a call yesterday, a webinar with a really well-known um, ATS company who had asked people what the top 10 reasons for discrimination are in their organization and neurodiversity wasn't even on the list wow that's and i was it was really interesting because and i even you know it wasn't like this i couldn't kind of interact but i posed a question and said where where's neurodiversity and and the guy said oh it wasn't in the top 10 and then just moved on like do you think we need to go back and make sure it is in the top 10 and do you think we're not even thinking about it well do you think that it's in some places it's not being thought of I mean gosh you know we live and breathe neurodiversity but you know I don't know whether it's in everybody's conversation and you come from the world of recruitment there yeah what what do you think that do do you think it's being talked about enough or sufficiently so there's a couple of things one no it's not um and in the ATS providers they're taking the lead of the organization <laughs> supply so some are so mid-market ATS providers for mm-hmm. example um smart recruiters um workable there's lots of others right but I know them because I've done work with them as a recruitment person then through into the kind of ED&I neurodiversity space yeah. because in that mid-market space there's almost a lot more interest and pressure from those organizations trying to compete so they're seeing it as an opportunity going, hey, what are you doing about neurodiversity? Why is that my mm-hmm. thing? Mm-hmm. And these mid-market ATSs are very good at having add-ons. So they've got like every add-on you could imagine so that these mid-market companies can like select a diversity technology or this technology or that tech. So that makes them much more agile and, and available to start that dialogue. The big beasts of ATS systems and HRS systems, I think, often a, a, a far away from that conversation and a much less agile in terms mm-hmm. of some of the technologies like their partners. But just one other thing as well to, to, to throw out is what I find based on um, it being like under the Equality Act mm-hmm. is that becomes also a reason not to go any further. So yeah. I find to tick the boxes to say, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're meeting the requirements, legal requirements, we've got a disability tick box, we're done. We're not yeah. going to do anything else because that's a risk. And then, and then you know, we take ca- candidates' names off, we're done. No, you've just moved the problem down the road and, yeah. and you're not really getting into the depth of the challenges that exist within the organisation. So that is, I, I'm throwing that out to you both because that's my fear when organisations use the Equality Act because actually, yes, they use it to tick some boxes, but really, do they actually do anything meaningful and impactful as part of their organisational structure? I mean, yeah. Charlie, Charlie just said, I think there's a huge issue that the majority of neurodivergent people in the workplace are not aware they're neurodivergent. So this is a big thing because yeah. if, you, if the boxes aren't yeah. appropriate, so if you go, are you dyslexic, ADHD, da, 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 and you can't tick that box because you don't fit in a box or you don't yeah. know you fit in a box or you don't fit in one box, but there's only one box, this mm-hmm. is the problem we've also got, which is mm-hmm. what do what do companies really need to do? HR need to do in an anticipatory way to go. Yeah. You will have people there, but they may not yeah. want to share that information with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Charlie, that's such an important point because, you know, in some ways, 
it's almost irrelevant mm. whether or not you have a diagnosis and I, and mm. it's not almost actually I will clarify that a little bit further to say actually that in, in employment law it is irrelevant whether or not you mm. have a diagnosis and there are some interesting cases that have already been through tribunal where it didn't even it didn't matter that the individual didn't have a diagnosis the obligation is on the organization to help everybody to be their best and actually in some cases where somebody had not been diagnosed it was against npower i quote this case all the time and i can't think of the guy's name but it was someone versus npower where he wasn't diagnosed but he told them that he um, thought he might be autistic but Empower continued to manage his performance and ended up dismissing him and he brought a claim of disability discrimination unfair dismissal and he won because the tribunal said they should have pursued that and enabled him to thrive in the organization rather than dismissing him and I think what happens when we start talking about the Equality Act and disciplinary and you know we start getting into quite um, a territory that becomes quite uncomfortable for line managers and then for us as HR trying to navigate and help line managers through it just becomes quite tricky I think if we take it back to basics of how do we enable everyone to be their best in our organization mm. what do we need to know about our individual strengths and challenges and how can we create a culture that enables us all to talk about our strengths and challenges openly and meet those within the organization. Thank you, Sherbon, that was him. Um, and you know, that then helps us to create a neuro-inclusive culture. Because if we're coming in saying, these are the things I'm good at, these are the things I'm not so good at, then we can help to ensure that we're conscious of those. That doesn't necessarily mean that it gives you carte blanche to behave badly. No. So, for example, if you're coming and saying, look, I've got ADHD or I've got an ND condition that means that I, I'll be quite blunt. I was posting something this week about autism um, at GCHQ where a guy had said I was blunt. I said it, I was very black and white and that's me and that's part of the reason why I was recruited. And sometimes people go, oh, that's when you're blunt, that's really rude. And that's not OK. It's like, I, I don't know what to do now because mm. you said I could bring my whole self to work and you know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And now you're telling me that I can't do that. So where's the line? Well, it's hard. And the line... line get crossed? The lines are blurred, aren't they? I mean, I think that's yeah. the And we are messy people, you know, so and I think sometimes you know, Martin sort of saying the HR usually protects the company, not the employees. But there is something here around um, whose responsibility is this? And it's actually yeah. all our responsibilities, you know, yeah. but you can't just be bloody minded and rude. No. You can't no. do that. However, the line between direct and somebody perceiving you as being rude can when you're misperceiving how somebody's communicating can be a difficult one sometimes to cross, can't it? Well, and let me put that in the context. I've posted today because me and my wife married 14 years on Monday. And, yeah. together, um, and, I, and I'm going to write a post about it because the, it's fascinating. Like you think, well, when we think about teams and the makeup of teams and, and how people connect, right? I, I can be blunt, there's misunderstandings. I could be deemed aggressive 
um, which was passion and enthusiasm, mm -hmm. but it can come out like this, right? If I'm mm -hmm. like really, and, and for a young woman, when we first got together, me in that kind of area of passion and enthusiasm after a couple of drinks on a Friday night can feel very intimidating. So we had to maneuver that, and that could have been the breakdown of our relationship several times. Mm -hmm. However, it wasn't because the, the whole thing was communication. Like, mm -hmm. wow, I found it intimidating there. And I'm like, whoa, I was passionate. Like, I'm I'm absolutely not meaning to be intimidated. But but it didn't, that didn't, that wasn't one conversation over one night. That was many conversations over many months and years. And, yeah. and but there's a level of trust and commitment to that relationship. And mm -hmm. I think you don't have that level of trust and commitment to the relation any relationship. So if you're in the workplace and you're autistic and you say, right, you you know I'm direct, yeah, that's okay. And that, yeah. that means people maybe can work on that. But there are limits to that directness where somebody can go, right, that's that was a bit too direct for me. Like that, yeah. that hurt me basically, that level yeah. of directness. So let's find a balance between protecting each other. The other way to look at it is somebody who's very data driven. Again, somebody who's who's, who's I, I like data, right? But I'm more like build, like <laughs> build the plane in flight. Someone yeah. else want to get all the data right before they let that plane go. Now, yeah. when two people come together, ooh, that can be painful if they mm. insist I have to go by their letter of the law, and I insist that they have to go by. We both may be senior leaders with an organisation. That becomes a problem, right? Yes. Find the point of going, here's the boundary for me, here's the boundary for you. We've got some flexibility either side of that to ensure that yeah. we can be productive, we can work together, and that it doesn't become this battleground constantly yeah. because that's not helpful for a relationship. Sorry, I just thought... <laughs> no, no, I think that's really important. It is, isn't it? It's a really important point because you mm. said something crucial here, which is about trust and yes. also relationships and yeah. battles. And yeah. when it becomes something that feels like me versus the world, yeah. then we become confrontational and we become, our uh, fright and flight comes and we may become more assertive or more or appear more aggressive because of fear and also past experiences. And actually in organizations and teams, the best teams work where there is a level of flexibility and also yeah. the reality that you can make mistakes. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a line you can cross, but you can climb back because you can go, sorry, yeah. I, I think I overstepped that. And then mm. as a team, why did that happen? Why yeah. what went wrong in that mm. moment that we can now learn from it? And what happens often, I think, and this is where HR is so important, is often we wait till it becomes a performance management issue and, yeah. it, and we delay it rather than going, what happened here? What can we learn together? Not you, what you're doing, right? What can we learn together so we work better together? And that's a much more honest, committed, like your marriage. I've been married 42 years. Oh, this is unbelievable. I was five when I got married. Um, it, 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 it takes work in a team and in a company to yeah. get it right, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, which is probably why I'm single. <laughs> and... <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was just the, the, the other thing that I think pulling out of that is communication is absolutely key here. And, you know, like you, Theo, at the beginning of that relationship, establishing the norms like what yeah. how do we do this and how do we communicate with each other because actually I think for us in HR the other thing is you know as well as the kind of 
performance management route, what we get to is that real conflict where somebody goes, like, I've just put up with this for years and now I'm just going to bring a formal grievance because this has got too far. Mm. And then we as HR have got to deal with the whole formal grievance process. And and actually, that's one side. But the, the stress then on the individuals, on the team, on the conflict that that creates is just really so avoidable if we just talk about at the beginning who are we what do we do how do we do it how do we all communicate and agree those kind of terms of our relationship and know that we can call it out if if we're not feeling comfortable and there are no repercussions for that and that I think is a really um, important starting point in any relationship with within organizations too I think about learning about learning to dance you know to do salsa you know do you know what I mean? and who sets <laughs> on each other's toes and who leads and who follows right and, and you negotiate the rhythms and the rules and you get yes. it wrong you practice and it gets more fl- I can't dance I can't do salsa but I would like to you know but I can see I would stand on people's toes a lot and I yeah. think that's a bit like we're talking Theo sorry no, just um, so uh, something I've noticed and something I hear from people as well is one of the challenges we've got is the kind of the, the trauma, the triggers, um, mm. they, they all happen at the point of stress. Yeah, and I right. have an engagement with somebody privately, uh, a conversation with them. They were asking me about, do I still do I still get stressed? Do I have to? And I was like, yes. And I was actually explaining to them that when I'm stressed is when I have least control of my triggers so that I'm most likely to get into that point of heightened uh, passion or what frustration or and actually I get I, I get hot and, and yeah. I start to feel like I'm trapped and, it, and right. it's like a physiological response to this mm-hmm. like a panic mm-hmm. uh, and, and therefore no matter what you know I can talk to CEOs whatever if, but if I if I'm in that moment of stress and panic because mm-hmm. they ask me to write on a whiteboard and I'm, I think I can't spam I'm going to look like an idiot and blah, or you're asking me to remember numbers and dates and I know I can't and I know I'm panicked. It's like they're simple things, mm-hmm. but it's at those moments I'm most likely to swear at someone. Like, I don't do that very often now. You know, like a moment of like going, I don't, I may not swear. I I, the, I say something that's uh, that's almost, it's fight or flight. It used to be, yeah. it was bullying me. I didn't, I just, because I knew that would stop it. That would yeah. stop everyone in that moment hurting yeah. me. But now I'm like, something else that's um disruptive mm-hmm. that causes a problem so that it stops the moment now how many people are out there who are doing that that is affecting their career their job yeah. their livelihood they don't want to do it but they just want the noise at that moment to stop and they'll do anything to stop it yeah but it's not it's it's, it's either you freeze or you or you fly right mm. and you and that's why we sometimes melt down so martin's saying yeah we have a meltdown you have no it's a bit like putting a child in a corner when somebody's coming towards you and you've got nowhere else to go you either kick out or you roll in a ball and we just go back to that when right. we're under, you can't think when your bucket's full and things are going yeah. on you don't have the capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be really overwhelming. And I think for for line managers, you know, there's an extra uh, you know, responsibility in, mm-hmm. in making sure that you're noticing changes in behavior in your team as well. So mm-hmm. this is the other thing we talk about with ND is, you know, if somebody has been performing really well and their performance changes, mm-hmm. what's happened? 
and looking out for that and being conscious of that and and talking to them talking to that person about what's changed and how we can pick up on that is really important but a lot of the time you know that's kind of by the by when we've got a busy time we've got lots of pressure we've got loads of deadlines and we just need to get stuff done and this person in our team is just not complying then it starts to trip over into those hr processes that where you know we're brought in and that's where i think you know we as hr professionals have a really key part in playing in asking those questions you know what happened talk to me in the second what were the circumstances what was going on how have they been why is this different you know those types of really probing questions Mm -hmm. to understand both sides of the story and I think that's what we as HR professionals have the privilege of doing actually is is being that independent party and I know Martin's comment earlier about we're there for the company you know ultimately our job is about keeping our company out of an employment tribunal but also it's about creating an organizational culture where everyone can be their best i'm going to challenge you mel because you said that but i I think you flinch yeah (laughs) no i just you're right because you know you're there as a part of the company to stop that happening and and there's a defensive mode but i actually think hr is around talent attraction and talent retention recruitment right absolutely the flip side of that is but yeah there's there Uh, but and i think the, the the flip side of that is the more the managers feel they have got somebody in HR, they can come and ask questions Absolutely. and gain some support, yeah. then it doesn't, I, I think the sad thing when it, it is like, I've got to go to HR because the line yeah. being crossed rather than actually coming to HR early and going, I'm having this situation, I don't know what to do, can I have your advice? Exactly. And yeah. how do I optimise my team? So I think yes. HR is quite a pivotal role in how do we help the managers be better yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe let me just qualify that a bit because, you know, ultimately the role of HR is about making sure that our people mm. are able to mm. be their best in an organisation. And that spans from attraction, recruitment, performance, talent management, development, etc., cetera, mm. uh, retention, exit, all of that stuff. Mm. So that's that's all of our job which is so rich and we have lots of experts in that space we have lots of people who are generalists etc big organizations small organizations but ultimately that's what we're there to do is for the people to be able to shine in whatever we do to this right yeah go on uh, martin said non-managers should be able to talk to hr freely so i think what's happening here uh, Melanie, you're uh, you've uh, you're speaking the truth as it is. I think um, Amanda, you're looking at how we would like it to be. Yes, um, and depend on the type of organisation and the structure and the policy and procedure. I think Martin is 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 talking a, a layer of truth as well, which is right. Okay, manager gets the support, but time and time again, employee does not get the support. Right, mm-hmm. employee is struggling. Manager, let's say, let's call them director goes to HR business partner, director's salary, business partner's salary, they don't equate, right? So who is that, what's that business partner going to do when they get employee come to them for help and they get director come to them for help, 
right? Or however the mechanism works within an HR firm. Like there is, <laughs> there's a conflict. There is a serious conflict in a time where we all also want to try and keep our heads above water and keep an employment, right? We don't want to be kicked out of a job, even in HR. So like what I see, and I've worked in HR, I've worked in recruitment, I see it. And it's not every person, but there is different layers and levels of pressure that come on a human, right? Where they have to make decisions that unfortunately is not about the employee, it's about themselves. And it is influenced by the level of seniority of that those people coming to them. Now, the, the other element to that is I wonder, is this where um, uh, alternative groups um, yes. can, who come together, who are supported by the organisation, but not led by HR, right, can be a place to come, almost like the old unions, because they're not what they want to earn in terms of supporting individuals, depending on where they are, that you can come and ask those questions in a protective environment from your peers who maybe are not going to judge you or there's not the risk to your career that there might be. Throw that out there. What do you think? God, I, 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 think, I've, I think I need to jump in and protect my profession a little bit at this point. Absolutely. I think what you're saying, what Martin's saying, what others are probably saying and thinking is right, right? As an HR, as a profession, there are certain members of our profession who might you know, be that way but actually mm. at our core mm. what we are there to do is to help the people of our organization and as we grow in our in our you know in our careers obviously we become more strategic we're moving more into that kind of you know less about the whites of the eyes conversations more about the data etc but ultimately you know all of us entered into this profession because we yes. care about the people yeah right and and I it's gonna sound corny but I'm gonna say it anyway I've never forgotten the human in my human resources and I still remember back to early conversations where I've had to have really tough conversations about redundancy for example but you know I will deliver that message as a professional I'm really sorry I'm gonna have to tell you at risk of redundancy and from that moment I become all about the employee yeah. and I'm here to help you. There is no silly question. Let me help you to navigate. And you're right, Theo, there is a kind of hierarchy in, I'm going to tell you, HR, what I want to happen, which is I need to cut 10% of my workforce or that person's being a complete pain. Blah, blah, blah. And then my role is I'm going to help you to achieve your aims, but I'm going to tell you how to do that in the confines of the law and make yeah. sure that you do that correctly so and that we don't have yeah, absolutely with with that with that individual with that human at the core there and that can cause conflict and as hr professionals we spend a lot of our time you know standing our ground and making sure that that is still understood and appreciated as we're navigating those difficult conversations but you know the what we have to do is to still we are professionals. We have that profession and enable that to, to continue too. Wonderful. Um, just to read this out because it's further yeah. learning if people want to go and hear some more about this topic. Um, this topic has exactly was being covered by Dr. Jonathan Ashong Lamptey uh, in the last two episodes of the Ele Element of Inclusion podcast. Definitely recommend listening um, to both. There we go. Just Thank if you me. want to kind of deep dive a bit more into this topic. 
Yeah, well, I take up your point, though, um, which is where do people go and feel safe to have conversation to ask yeah. what they, where can they go to ask what can I what should I expect? What mm. shouldn't I expect? Because I think there is there's a two way street, which is how should I behave? You know, and yeah. what's appropriate? When am I not doing what I should do? Right. Mm. From the individual side of the law as well of what lines are they crossing because mm. it can be very defensive can't it sort of you know yeah. we're, we're you know have you crossed the line or not and I and I think going to tribunal must be the the worst worst yeah. worst worst thing for somebody to go through incredibly stressful Absolutely. And, you know, yeah I, I think you're right there because the union was a place in in olden times mm. where you could go and ask for some independent guidance yeah and I'm not sure where that place and space is, really. And, and just, and this is not to, to do HR. I am TA. My role is embedded in HR. So I am HR on, on that basis mm -hmm. in terms of my experience. But there was a Fast Company article, and this is a straw poll, right? So I'm not, but it was a high proportion of uh, HR professionals who responded to that Fast Company uh, or, or the, the research. I'll dig it out somewhere and share it again um, mm -hmm. in, in, in the link. But it was something like two thirds of HR professionals said they wouldn't hire somebody who's autistic or ADHD. Now, mm. why is the question? And it's not necessarily because they're not people, people, they don't care, they're not right. passionate. It's because they know that at the end of that is often a tribunal or, or problems with leadership, management, lack of support to the individual. So in there may be an element of protecting the individual that, because they know the organization is not set up to support them. I, I don't know, but I think it's just the reality, I think, of of some of what we see and the fear of what candidates see even if it's not wholly accurate and true perception matters right and yeah. employees don't feel they, they can come to the people why why don't they you know and that, yeah. i think we can pick and solve that to support yeah. the employee to to be able to have confidence coming for that sport or to have other places that they can go to build on that so that we don't end up yeah 50%, I've just put the link in here, which is 50, two years ago, 2021, 50% of employers said they would not employ somebody who was a neuro minority, right? Yes. Yeah. So what's clear? Is it perception, time, cost? You know, and I think I'm picking that in the Neurodiversity Index report now. Things are changing. Yeah. But people are still fearful of sharing information because mm -hmm. you're worried about what's going to happen and yeah. whether you'll be treated differently. Yeah, and I that that statistic from the Institute of Leadership and Management is one that really floored me actually mm -hmm. when I mm -hmm. when I saw that and I asked myself that question why. And mm -hmm. genuinely, I think it comes from a place of ignorance. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a in an offensive way. I mean that in a we don't know what we don't know way. Yeah. And yeah. I'll include my HR colleagues in that too, Theo, from your from that research. If we don't know about the brilliance of neurodiverse talent, about the real benefits that that brings to our organization, how it can really enhance our creativity, our ability to meet those really, you know, hard targets. In fact, the targets would probably look completely different with our neurodiverse population. Then why would we, how would we know that we should be really striving to ensure that we have a great representation in our organization? Because a lot of our knowledge is based on really historical stereotypes on the way in which neurodiverse conditions have been represented 
in media, in film, in whatever we've watched. And so our knowledge is really um, far away from reality. So what we have to do is to continue to have conversations, to raise awareness so that people just truly have that understanding and then support, you know, create neuro-inclusive cultures within organizations. And that means helping businesses to understand what a neuro-inclusive culture is, what it looks like and how they can achieve it. So, you know, that's what we're all about. That's what we are doing and how we can help you as your business to be neuro-inclusive too. Whoa, there we go. That's a great mm. end. We can't go further, can we really? <laughs> Drop <laughs> mic. That was mic drop, yeah, exactly. Um, Just to let everybody know, the whole point of this conversation is to challenge the status quo, to ask the difficult questions. This is why we invite people along in the public space domain. So this is what we're doing here, right? So if you're watching this on Rewind, comment, please. We see the comments. Come and join our group, Neurodiversity Tea Time. Um, You can find the group, search groups, and search for Neurodiversity Tea Time. You can find it there. Join the group. Get involved in the debate. This is a conversation, right? That is the whole point of what we're having here. No single person is right. I will always, I will always say the the alternative view because I, I, I like the debate. Um, <laughs> so come along, join us. All these different channels you can find us on. Um, Amanda, amazing, love you as always. Melly, really appreciate. Thank you, Mel. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. What a session! That was Have incredible. Have you on. Have a great day, everybody. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. Bye.